please uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We finished the book of James, and I promised last week that this Sunday I would introduce our next sermon series. Appropriate that we would read this passage. Uh, Our church participates in a ministry called The Walk to Emmaus, and they just concluded a walk. Amen. Amen. So uh, from our church, Jim Boatman went during the men's walk, and Donette Boatman and Bonnie Seahorn went during the women's walk. And I want to read this passage about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, beginning with the 13th verse. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, Well, what things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word and sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets... He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Amen. Amen. According to Jesus, the story of the Bible is all about Jesus, not just the New Testament. It's all about Jesus. And in fact, this morning we're going to see the story of life is all about about Jesus. He's the author of life, the definer of life, the redeemer of life, and the judge. He is the high priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the mediator between God and men. He holds the whole creation together by the power of his word. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the author of the story the main character, the hero, the plot, and the resolution of the plot. He even wrote the epilogue. 
And so this morning, as we cast the vision for where we're going this summer, we are going to know this story better. I want to introduce you to a term I've used in the pulpit before, but it's a popular term in university right now and in popular culture, in philosophy departments. It's called a meta-narrative. It's a fancy word that just means a story about other stories. But if you use a fancy word, you can charge people lots of money to go to college and learn the fancy words. You might be familiar with the term metaphysics because there's a little red building in Golden Hills that says metaphysics on the outside. And it's supposed to be a place where people can gather and talk about metaphysics. Metaphysics is the study of the fundamental nature of being and the world that encompasses it. In other words, what is out there, you know, what is what is the substance of, of this universe? And what is it like? And you imagine people sitting around in berets, sipping espresso, and pontificating metaphysics, and you'd be right. Now, the building looks like it's in disrepair, and I never see any cars in the parking lot. So either they've figured it out, or they ran out of coffee. I don't know the story behind the building. I'm sure some of you do. A meta-narrative, then, is... I'll give you the dictionary definition. In critical theory, and particularly in postmodernism, is a narrative about narratives of historical meaning, experience, or knowledge, which offers a society legitimation, which isn't even a real word, we're just making stuff up now. Le- legitimation through the anticipated completion of a as yet unrealized master idea. Let me put that in layman's terms. But you're welcome. The master idea is the story that makes sense of all of our individual stories. And it seems that we need some kind of meta narrative to give life meaning and purpose and ultimate meaning. Otherwise, we're just living Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanities. What's the point in getting up and going to work? What's the point in going to school? What's the point in getting a job and making money to buy stuff so we can be happy, quote-unquote? You can't take it with you, and so on. And you can fall into depression very easily, and cynicism, and um, or just keep yourself entertained so you don't have to think about such heady things. It was a Frenchman who coined this term back in 1984, Jean-Francois Lyotard. No surprise that it was a Frenchman who came up with this heavy philosophical idea, but he coined the term so that he could turn around and argue that there is no meta-narrative. So he built up the straw man and then knocked, knocked it right down. There is no meta narrative. His idea, and it is the idea of postmodernism, which is the period of history we find ourselves living in, is that every individual story is okay on its own. You get to determine 
your story. What you want your life to be and what you want it to mean is entirely up to you and you can somehow build up your own ultimate significance just through believing with all your heart that your truth is truth and that your story matters. And we're saturated with this from a very early age. You can be whatever you want to be. Just believe with all your heart. When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. And this has been going on for quite some time, maybe uh, the last 50 years. This idea that everybody's individual narrative or story is fine, and somehow as a society that would enhance society. But what you'll find is that society can't function together with that much diversity. If there isn't something to unify all of us, then we go splitting off our separate ways. And in fact, at some point, my story will infringe on your story. And then we have problems. Either you bend the knee to my story or I bend the knee to your story. America is getting too crowded for us to run and hide and try to live out our own little meta-narratives in individual communities. There's, there's no place left for the pilgrims to start over, so to speak. We need a meta-narrative. We're built for a meta-narrative. We need an overarching story that makes sense out of everything. Yes, for a while, it feels good to have that kind of liberating freedom to say, well, this is my story. You can't tell me how to live my story. It's my story. I'm writing my own story. And yet, at some point, you begin to sense there's an emptiness and, a, and there's no satisfaction in living that way. It's a very lonely place. And you start looking for other people who share your story. And for a while, you're like, oh, I found a group of people who share my story. But at some point, your stories will diverge. And then you have a choice to make. Do I alter my story or do we split ways again? Some folks, especially back in the 60s, decided to escape the meta-narrative altogether through drugs. We'll just escape reason. We'll use... Uh, psychotropic medication, illegal psychotropic medication, to escape reality. In this day and age, a lot of those psychotropic medications are now legal and prescribed. And I don't mean to mock anyone who's struggling with any kind of mental illness who's on a psychotropic medication. But certainly our problems become exacerbated or magnified when we're not thinking of God's story, and we're trying to create our own story, but our story's clashing with reality. And you can't bend reality to fit your story. What we need to do is bend the knee to God's truth in His story. And when we do that, and trust God, and trust His sovereignty, and trust His story, and see our small part but significant part to play in the story, God actually gives us great freedom, yes, to carve out our own story as long as it fits in the greater story. That is where you find peace. 
and wholeness and satisfaction. That is what James was talking about when he said, don't be double-minded. Don't, on the one hand, try to live God's story, but I don't like His story over here in this area of my life, so I'm going to kind of write my own script over here. It doesn't work that way. Oh, you'll get away with it for a little while. But Paul said, God will not be mocked. Do you not know that you will reap what you sow? Eventually, you sow absurdity, you will reap absurdity. You sow a story that is in contrast to God's story, and you just can't live that out anymore. Life becomes unmanageable. It doesn't make sense. You have this feeling of anxiety that something's just not quite right. That's a good thing God's put in us. That's our conscience telling us we need to change course and re-examine life and reevaluate the story that we're writing. Jean-Francois Lyotard's critics immediately pointed out to him that to say there is no overarching story is an overarching story. By saying there is no meta-narrative, he created a meta-narrative. You can't escape it. So instead of trying to escape it or write your own, better to find out what the true meta-narrative is. Embrace it, live it, proclaim it. Now to kind of bring this down home to where most of us live and breathe and walk... The story of meta-narrative was uh, talked about in a movie that came out a few years ago. It was supposed to be a kid's movie, but a lot of adults found it entertaining. It was called The Lego Movie. Anyone see The Lego Movie? I like The Lego Movie. For some people, it was unbearable to watch because it was kind of hyper, almost like a bunch of people with ADHD got together and made a movie. But there was a lot of clever philosophy in the movie for adults. And the point of the movie, without giving away the ending, was that kids today who buy Legos aren't using their imagination to build or create their own story anymore. It's always a kit. It's the Star Wars Lego kit. It only builds a Millennium Falcon. That's it. And then you build it, and you put it on your shelf, and then you don't touch it anymore. And then you have to go buy the next kit. And it's marketing genius, people. Absolute genius. And yet, it flies in the face of Lego's mission statement. Their whole mission statement is to unleash and unlock the creative potential of children. But once you own 500 Lego pieces, you really don't need to buy anymore. They last forever. They're going to be here after the Armageddon, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Have you ever stepped on one? These... These things are built to last. And so they needed a way to sell more more Legos. They came out with the Lego uh, kits. In the movie, the Lego characters go to a place called the Cloud Cuckoo Land. And in the Cloud Cuckoo Land, the Legos are just kind of mismatched together in no seemingly particular order. And they're like, oh, welcome to Cloud Cuckoo Land, where you can be anything you want, and there's no rules, and the sky's the limit. Now, just as long as you don't ever read instructions, and they go through like a list of like ten rules, and character says, 
wow, for a place with no rules, there sure are a lot of rules. And so they're poking fun at themselves. They know postmodernism is irrational and unreasonable, and yet they need postmodernism. They need this idea that there's no rules to give permission for us to live our lives the way we want to. And yet there's the dilemma is where chaos reigns, there's no peace. Too much diversity and no unity, and there's no community. At the end of the movie, they talk about there being this one special person in the universe that's the chosen one that's going to make everything right. Gee, I wonder where that came from. (laughs) Borrowing from the real meta-narrative, and everybody connects with that, whether they're Christians or not, they connect with that chosen one who's coming to make everything make sense, to right all the wrongs, to set order so we can all have peace and happiness. And yet, in the middle of the movie, then they say, there is no chosen one. Everybody's the chosen one. Everybody's the special And one of the characters said, well, if everybody's special, then none of us are special. Again, they're pointing, making fun of their own point of view. And yet, it's madness to hold on to a point of view that you know is ultimately self-defeating. Now, to me, that sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. Did God really say man and woman had perfect peace Order, harmony, unity, everything made sense. In comes another voice that tempts them to embrace their own reality, their own definition of reality, their own definition of morality. Even though God, the creator and the giver of life and everything good, said, well, that's going to bring death, disorder, chaos, separation. Man took the bait plunge the whole world into sin, and we've been living with this tension ever since, this chaos, this absurdity of, I've got to make my own story. I've got to define my own reality. But we're created beings. How can the created being define reality? When I was a boy, they had these books called Choose Your Own Adventure. And you'd read along, and then you'd get to a crisis point, and they'd say... If you want to chase after the abominable snowman, go to page 24. If you want to turn back and go the other way, go to page 13. And I love those books. I felt like I was in control of the story. But now I look back and I see somebody else wrote all the pages. (laughs) Yes, I had some choices to make, but I'm a lot like a fish trapped in a fishbowl. Sure, I can swim here, there, anywhere as long as I don't bump into the glass. And I can't jump out of the water as a fish because, you know, no lungs. So, to some, God's meta-narrative seems constricting and confining, and that's not fair, and why does he get to write this story? But when he gives you eyes to see his goodness and his grace and how beautiful this story is, you embrace it and accept it, and how life is rich and full and has purpose and meaning, ultimate meaning. And when you stay within the boundaries God has given us, there really is actually a lot of freedom to choose our path. 
There's way more freedom we try to tell our kids when there's rules. You see a home where there's no rules and no consistent discipline, I will show you an exasperated, miserable child. Bring in the rules and the consistent discipline, and, and they will fight it at first, but then they'll lean into it and love it and accept it. And that's who our Heavenly Father is. So we are as Christians, so to speak, to sit at the knee of our Father and listen to His story and enjoy it. Jesus himself is the meta-narrative, as I've said. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. I don't want to be O foolish men, do you? Or O foolish women. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? He's hearkening back to this Old Testament. Isn't that what the Old Testament prophets talked about? Then beginning with Moses, and when he says with Moses, it wasn't that another one of the men there was Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and so they would call the first five books Moses. In the same way I said in Paul, it says, and then I, we did the Lord's Supper. So we refer to all of Paul's epistles as in Paul, or in John, and so they would say from Moses... All the way through the prophets, Jesus explained to them everything concerning about himself, which was everything in Moses to the prophets. The last book of the Old Testament being the prophet Malachi, and we have wisdom literature in there, we have poetry. Oh, what a walk that must have been. Could you imagine the kind of teaching they got and their eyes enlightened and, oh, you know, you have those moments in life where you have those aha moments and the pieces fit together. And, oh, now I see. And I hope that happens for you on Sunday morning and in your ABF groups and in your small groups. But could you imagine a whole walk for miles of just, oh, 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 is that what that passage means? This story all makes sense. Here's something I can use as the foundation of my whole life and existence. Beloved, our culture is searching for a new meta-narrative, and we can supply the meta-narrative, but only if we know it and live it ourselves. Western civilization was built upon the Christian meta-narrative. It's why here at Heritage Oak School, the classical Christian education is based off of Western civilization, all the classics grounded in the scripture. Along came the Enlightenment in the 1800s, and the Enlightenment promised we no longer need to define reality based on revelation, we will figure it out through science and human reason. The birth of secular humanism. Secular, apart from religion. Humanism, that man is the highest authority. The Enlightenment brought in, ushered in modernism. And modernism said, now that we understand science, we will use the rational human mind to solve all of humanity's problems. We will eliminate wars, diseases, injustice. Then World War I hit, World War II, and on and on it went. 
And yes, through science, we eradicated smallpox. But it seems like a new disease comes faster than we can make vaccines for the old diseases. And some of the old ones are making a comeback now. And peace and harmony is not reigning over our our planet. And even in America, at times of peace and prosperity, when everyone's getting what they want and there's happiness and optimism, the Enlightenment and modernism left a hole in people's hearts. I feel unsatisfied. To Mick Jagger, right? I can't get no satisfaction. And that guy had everything. Everything, really. Nothing stopped that guy. He had all the money and and no moral code. He lived Ecclesiastes. The world was his oyster, and um, he indulged, and he could find no satisfaction. So then in came postmodernism, which kind of started in the 60s, where we started throwing off authority in our country, a lot turned to drugs. You really saw a shift in our art. Art got kind of wacky, kind of abstract. Throw off all the rules. There are no rules. Everybody's writing their own story. There's no absolute truth, which is an absolute truth. There's no meta narrative, which is a meta narrative. But you can see why this caught on. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same temptation Satan gave man in the garden. You can write your own reality. Postmodernism is currently failing. Postmodernism was taught in the liberal mainstream churches, and now they're dead and empty. And we are seeing a resurgence, praise God, and reformation doctrine. Back to the Bible, sola scriptura. This is the meta narrative. The answers are to be found in this book. A huge battle was fought in our own denomination. And the conservatives have won the day. Al Mohler, president of Southern Theological Seminary, really led the charge and is still leading the charge. It's a great denomination to be in at this period. Fifty years ago, probably couldn't say that. Liberalism was sweeping through the Southern Baptist Convention. But there are We're on solid ground now. That as you look in any society through the history of the church, things ebb and flow. Things ebb and flow. So we can't let our guard down. We have to be vigilant. So that's the good news. The bad news is where there's a void, a vacuum of meta narratives, all kinds of competing meta narratives are flooding into the vacuum. And the one that I'm most fearful of in, in, in all the other prognosticators, people trying to predict what's going to happen, statism is normally what fills the void. Statism is giving the state or the government the power to write the meta narrative, and if you don't like it, they've got the power to make you like it. Even if you don't like it in your heart, we'll force you to like it on the outside. And right now, everybody's got their individual competing little meta-narratives. 
You have the environmentalists. That's a meta-narrative. We've got to save the planet. It gives them something to think about in the morning when they wake up and, and structure their whole life. And beloved, there's nothing wrong with envir- the, uh, protecting the environment because in God's meta-narrative, the earth, the creation is important. We are stewards of His creation. When He comes back, there's going to be an accounting How did you handle my planet? And how did you handle all that is within it? So it's not that you need to reject the Christian meta-narrative in order to care about the environment. It's that without the Christian meta-narrative, caring about the environment can't last. There is no foundation under there. Eventually, it becomes absurd. And you've got the environmental types flying around the country in their private jets using way more fuel than I ever will in a lifetime to tell us all how to live environmentally sound. And that's the way statism goes. And you say, well, what happens after, we go- after we're gone? You know, uh, isn't the sun eventually going to run out of energy and the whole thing's going to... Don't bother me with details! Our meta-narrative says Christ will come back and eventually create a new heavens and a new earth. That doesn't give us permission to trash the one we have now, but it certainly puts things in perspective. Civil rights is a huge meta-narrative right now. Anywhere I see an injustice, we've we've got to do something about those bullies. And the civil rights movement of the 60s was, was a good movement. We had Jim Crow laws, we were, we were post-slavery, but we sure weren't a unified country. Uh, but now it's slipping into absurdity. And the, bull, the people fighting the bullies are becoming the bullies. In God's meta-narrative, everybody has human dignity because we're all created in the image of God. But morality is a different subject. God determines morality. And so most of the civil rights battles today are based in morality, not in essence of who we are as human beings. I know the other side would say, well, that is my essence, whatever my sexual orientation or whatever gender that I'm choosing. But this is not the same civil rights battle that was fought in the 60s. That was an all men are created equal. Another one would be other religions, they have a meta-narrative as well. ISIS has a meta-narrative. And it's a very strong meta-narrative, and people are so tired of postmodernism that they're attracted to this kind of stuff. We have people from our own country going overseas to sign up. And so as Christians... We know the correct meta-narrative. We have it. We need to understand it, know it, live it, demonstrate that it's superior to all other ways of life and be able to sit down with people and explain the meta-narrative to them. Now, don't think that just because you tell them the meta-narrative with a smile on your face, they're going to accept it right away. Remember, this meta-narrative starts out by telling us we're the problem. 
All other meta-narratives point the finger at everyone else except the person telling the meta-narrative. Yet by God's grace, when someone's eyes are open and they see this is the true story, it's the most beautiful, wonderful story you've ever heard. Jesus calls, again, foolish those who reject the biblical meta-narrative. Remember James was drawing also from the Sermon in the, the Mount? The end of that passage is a very familiar passage. Jesus ends his sermon by saying, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Yesterday would have been a good day to preach that passage. In, in other words, he's, he's saying those who hear Jesus' words, and Jesus' words are telling us the meta-narrative. You hear his story, and if you don't act on those words, he's calling us fools. Because you're going to choose to write the story of your life in the framework of a meta-narrative that isn't according to reality. Why would you do that? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Notice, both men are building a house. This isn't a passage about home building. Everyone can build a house. Everyone can live a life. It really doesn't take much wisdom. You get up in the morning and you just go. Do your thing. That's the building your house. He's making a distinction between those who build their life on revealed truth, which is difficult because it runs against our sin nature. It's hard to live disciplined, amen? It starts from the moment you wake up. I don't want to get out of bed. Right there, the fight begins. He's contrasting those who build their life according to reality, which is Jesus' words, and those who choose to build their life on some reality of their own making, which you can build a house. The guy had a completed house. He lived in it. It was probably beautiful. The envy of all his neighbors, and then the storms of life came. And living according to your own narrative, your own meta-narrative, is fun for a while, and then life kicks in. Life happens. Reality has a funny way of dashing our fantasy worlds. Amen? And you have a choice to make. Either repent and live, rebuild your house according to God's blueprints, or you continue living in your fantasy world and you either expect everyone around you to condescend to your, your fantasy world. Or you entertain yourself or drug yourself so you don't have to deal with reality. Or you accumulate enough power to force other people to live according to your fantasy world. That's when it gets scary, folks. And that's where we're finding ourselves in our country 
That seems to be what's headed down the pike. You saw the governor of Indiana pass that legislation that protects religious freedom, so you don't have to, you know, cater a marriage that you think is unbiblical. And the the noise and the hatred that came out, companies saying we're moving our headquarters out of Indiana, you know, and all that pressure put on the governor, and he finally said, okay, we'll put a clause in there to make sure people aren't discriminated against, but the clause actually has now weakened protections against... It would have been better if they had never passed the first bill in the first place. Interesting times we're living in. And it's amazing to me that all this has happened out in the Midwest, and we're here in California, and you figure this would have been the first place we'd see something like this. Maybe we're so distracted by our lack of water or whatever that... I guess maybe the difference out here is we pass laws and then a single judge just overturns it. So those living another meta-narrative aren't so um, activist out here for now. Well, before I get too political in the pulpit, or maybe it's too late for that, you have to understand, though, that that our faith isn't something self-contained in church, and then we go out into the world and, and we don't need any of this the rest of the, the week. The world is the story. When Jairus said, we fall on our knees at worship in front of God on Sunday morning, we better be falling on our knees before Him all throughout the week. You don't carry your Bible in your back pocket to church and then leave it on the nightstand the rest of the week. And that is exactly what the world's going to call us to do. You can have your freedom of worship, do whatever you want Sunday morning, just don't take it outside the walls of this church. But we'd have to. This is life, this is reality. And this is the word that brings life. And the very word that people are rejecting is, is the same word that's going to bring life. And so we have to overcome that fear of people being angry with us or people rejecting us or saying, well, you're not loving, you're not tolerant, you're a hater, you're a bigot. All the name-calling. Say, no, I'm graciously and humbly saying this is how I must live my life as a Christian because it's reality. And we're inviting you in love to live in that reality as well. We have chosen a um, Bible curriculum that we use in Sunday school at the 9 a.m. service. All the kindergarten through 12th grade use this curriculum from Answers in Genesis. It does a wonderful job of teaching the biblical meta narrative. Takes them story by story through the Bible, connecting all the dots together. They have this wonderful mnemonic device for remembering the outline of the biblical meta-narrative. They call it the seven seas of history. Creation, Genesis 1-2. to God created everything out of nothing. He himself is not created. He is self-existent. As opposed to the world's idea of creation, that the universe spontaneously created itself, starting with matter and energy. I don't know how the matter and energy got there. 
But some, for some reason, it decided to explode and organize itself very intricately into the universe, galaxy, solar system, and planet we find ourselves on. That's their story. Our story is different, that when you see order and creativity and intelligence, there must be person behind it. Corruption, Genesis 3 and 4, this is why we're all a mess and why the world's a mess. Man fell into sin, brought death and separation, and the planet was cursed. The whole universe was cursed by God. Whereas the world says that the reason people have problems is not because they're bad, but they're really good, they're just misinformed. And if we reinform them through our our re-education programs and our um, counseling and whatnot, we can fix what ills everybody. The Bible says that we are born into sin. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And God brought catastrophe, Genesis 6 through 9. The flood, he flooded the entire planet, which radically altered the geology of our planet and our hydrology and our climate. It's a different story than what the world is telling. In Genesis 11, we get confusion. God told man to spread out and have dominion over the earth. We see man coming together and building a city, a humanistic society to exalt man on the earth. And they built this great tower which became the symbol of man's pride. And God confused man's languages which forced people to scatter around the world in people groups with similar languages. As opposed to the story that modern anthropology and sociology tell us about where languages came from. In God's meta-narrative, we're all one race, so there doesn't need to be racism. Oh, Christians are a bunch of racists. No, our meta-narrative says there's one race, the human race. We all trace our roots back to Adam and Eve. Then they go to Christ, the cross, and the consummation. Consummation is an uncomfortable word because we're only used to hearing it about the night of the honeymoon. But consummation is when you kind of wrap up and make official to bring an end to all all things. And they needed a C word to keep the C's going. You'll notice, though, that there's a, kind of a gap there, right? Between number four and number five. And that's... What Jesus was talking about, he took them from Moses through the prophets to show how it all is about him. And so that's what we'd like to do over the summer, starting with next Sunday. I know it's not officially summer, but we're going to call May summer, because you know if you have students at home, they're already considering it summer. So, Not a whole lot of schoolwork getting done. <laughs> so... Uh, from May through August, we're going to start with the call of Abram, Abraham and make sense of why did God call Abram? What is this nation Israel all about? And connect those dots for all of us. If you're familiar with this material, then you're, you're going to be blessed because you're going to 
hear it with fresh ears. But you've got to remember, folks, God is bringing new Christians to our church. It's a wonderful thing. New believers. The story is new to them. They want to know how all these dots connect. I know some of you, because you've told me, say, I love the Word of God. It's the Word of God. The Word of God stands. And then you get home and you try to read from the Old Testament and you're like, I don't get it. I feel guilty because I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to love this Word and I, I don't really understand it. So we're going to help you understand how the whole story fits together. So all Sunday school classes, K-12, through 12, already use this curriculum. There's a devotional guide that helps families take the lesson into the home. First service cleaned me out. I will put in a rush order tomorrow or tonight, and we'll have more of these by next week. But whether you've got kids at home or you don't, your family unit can can take this and extend the sermon into the week. This will also help you connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, we're going to be learning the same things that all the kids K-12 through will learn, just on a more sophisticated level. I think that's going to be a wonderful thing to have the whole church focused on the same passage of Scripture. Just imagine the conversations that will happen in our community. Uh, we'll provide an activity sheet that corresponds to the sermon for children who want to stay in the worship center during the sermon. They'd hear the same thing if they went to class. So if you're grooming your kids to, to, to stay in the, the worship center, this might be a good opportunity to see how they would do sitting through a, a sermon. And if, if you're an adult and want to do the activity sheet, I mean, we're not going to stop you. There's a word search and crossword, and we'll provide crayons... So, the summer schedule. We will be endeavoring to start first service promptly at 9 a.m. I don't know if you've ever gone to first service, but um, it, people have been coming later and later and later. So, if you're a Sunday school teacher, you'll need to come by 8.45 so parents can drop their kids off to Sunday school. And we'll try to get... First service started right at 9 a.m. and then finished between 10.10 and 10.15. So we can do the donuts and coffee thing like we did last summer and fellowship with the second service folks. I just heard this like... It was like stomachs growling everywhere. Carlos is back in business, so... And then second service, we'd like it to start between 10.30, 10.35. So obviously we have to get first service out on time so you can fellowship and then get you back, get the second service started. And then we'd like to end closer to noon. And we're, we're a little after noon. But we, we can pull this off. You can preach shorter through Old Testament narrative than through an epistle. It's a little bit harder to, to teach through an epistle. And then just for May through August, if you've got a third through sixth grader, we're going to have them in here. So they, the Grove will be closed for the summer. The third graders in there now are really almost fourth graders. So I think this will work out fine. I think we can tailor a sermon that will be very engaging to them and the adults as well. And again, we'll have the activity sheet 
for the kids. And then back in, in September, we will we'll have a Sunday school class again for the third and fourth graders and maybe the fifth and sixth graders. We're just finding that teaching third through sixth all at once in the same room has, has been a bit difficult. A lot of different developmental levels there. So this is what we're going to try. It's going to be a wonderful thing. As far as the kids being in the service, I know some people are concerned. It's just it's for the summer, and then we'll relook at it in the fall. So I'll have these for you next Sunday. Nathan will actually kick us off next Sunday with the call to Abram. He'll be preaching next Sunday, which is kind of funny because he's the one that's going to have to end at noon. I made the promise. <laughs> Nathan... I wrote the check. Nathan has to cash it now. So let's uh, pray. Father God, thank you for your story that you have already written. And we find ourselves in the pages of your story. And we are learning to embrace your story. It's a good story. It's reality. It's truth. It's life. Thank you, Jesus for redeeming us from really wanting to write our own story and our own rules and our own plot. How foolish of us. Change our hearts, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and your Word to be in harmony with your story. That the world would see Christianity and be compelled by it attracted to it, that we would live lives of of peace and love and sacrificial giving. We know it's a difficult story to hear for the first time. And so give us the grace when people get angry at the Christian message. Because that was us too. We were enemies of you at one time too, God. Give us hearts full of grace and mercy and love, but also courage and perseverance and endurance. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.